You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Uh, We this morning are beginning a series through what we do every fall, our mission as a church. Every fall we circle back to who we are as the people of God, what it means to be the people of God, and circle back to our mission. And, And this year what we're hoping to do as a church is just truly to come back to the basics, to come back to the basics of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to participate in his mission, to make disciples, to multiply disciples around this world. And so uh, I feel when I cover topics like this, I feel some insecurities personally because I feel like this is stuff that many of you are familiar with. And so it feels like, man, is this just going to be like, yeah, same old, same old. We've heard this before. What I want to do for a moment is I want to pray that God would give us a refreshed vision for what it means to be followers of Jesus in this world. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but not just to be a disciple, but what it means to be people that are called to participate in his mission, the mission Jesus gave his people to make disciples. My my fear personally is that I would become so familiar with these ideas and concepts that I would move past them and not actually think about, God, what do you wanna speak to me? What do you wanna change in me? And how do you wanna use me to participate in what you're doing in the lives of others? And so I'd love for us to take a moment And just pause before the presence of God and pray that his spirit would refresh our vision, refresh our minds, refresh our lives in seeing what he's called us to in this world. And there might be some of you in here that you're new to Christianity, or maybe you've been around Christianity for a long time. And the idea of being a disciple of Jesus, of giving your life to follow Jesus and help others do the same, something you've been familiar with, but maybe something that you've never stepped into. And my prayer for you is that God would awaken you to the beauty, the joy, and the goodness of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so let's take a moment and pause and consider the reality that God is even right now with us. Would you calm your heart before the presence of God? Jesus, you told us in this commission, pay attention, look at this, consider this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we confess that to be true. Would you help our hearts right now to believe it, that you're with us now? Friend, Jesus is with us. He sees you today. He knows you. He knows your story. He knows your personality. He knows your doubts, your fears, your joys, and your sorrows. And he wants to speak to us today. I know that he does. He wants to speak to us today. And so, God, would you help us through the power of your spirit to open our hearts. And if we hear your voice as you're speaking to encourage, to discipline, to refine, to build up, to remind us of grace and love and mercy, that if we hear your voice, you'd help us to not harden, to not turn away, but to receive what you want to do in us and through us in this world. And so pour out your spirit on this moment as we, as a broken people, gather before you. And would you speak and transform us with your power? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. At the beginning of the summer, Uh, our staff was kind of doing some training just to recenter as a team. So we're preparing for the fall and for the spring. 
recentering as a team around our mission as a church. And uh, I sat down with our staff on this one particular first kind of meeting, and I said jokingly, uh, but uh, not everybody like knew I was joking immediately, uh, but I was like, I went away to the mountains and I had this epiphany, big news, we are totally changing our mission. And, uh, and some people had like almost like an, a panic attack. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, not, not this. Please not now, because we've been planning and processing. And I was, I was joking, but what I shared with our staff in that moment, what I'll share with you is our, our, new, our new mission as a church, that we at Park Church exist to make tapioca. It's our new mission. Big change, little shift, little shift. And as soon as I shared that with our staff, people were like, Gary's off the rails. He's gone nuts. Uh, We exist to make tapioca. And if I actually came to our staff and I said that, if I came to this community and I said, hey, we're changing the mission. We used to be making disciples. Now we're making tapioca. What would be one of the first questions you'd want to ask? What is tapioca? What is that? If you're thinking like, does everybody else know what tapioca is? Like most of you probably don't. Uh, Tapioca is, it's a great question. Tapioca is like most fundamentally a starch that comes from the storage roots of a cassava plant, which is a plant that's found in South America, particularly Brazil. But that starch gets liquid formed. It can get dehydrated and become a flour, like a a decent gluten-free alternative to flour, actually, for those that care about that kind of a thing. Uh, and uh, it can become a flour. But in Brazil, when they talk about tapioca, it's a, it's a dish. It's a meal. It's like a crepe. It's like a Brazilian crepe. And it is primo. I did a church planting internship in Brazil almost 20 years ago, and I, did tap- I had tapioca every single day. I'd go to this little booth, street food booth, and I'd go and get it. And what they do is they take this starch flour and they make it and they put all sorts of incredible fillings in it, like different kind of assortments of cheese uh, and different vegetables, sometimes some meats. You could get eggs on it. You could do a breakfast tapioca kind of crepe. You could also do a dessert one where they put coconut inside the sort of crepe tapioca kind of exterior. And inside it, they put like a chocolate and strawberries. Come on. I mean, come on. This is why, right? So, so they like, What is tapioca? It's essentially a Brazilian crepe that'll change your life. What would be another question if I said, that's what we're going to do? What would be another question we'd ask? Why? Why? Why are we making tapioca? Why would we do that, right? And my answer would just be for joy. Just delight. It will change your life. And as we experience the joy of tapioca, we'll be able to spread that joy to others. As we make tapioca for others, everybody gets to enter into this joy and it will change the world. We do it for joy. Now let's say I explained to you what it was and you got your mind around it and I explained to you why and for whatever reason, you're like, I'm in. Yeah, let's do this. Uh, What would be your next question? How? How do we do it? How do we do that? How do we do that? What is tapioca? Why are we making it? And how? How do, how do we make it? Our, our mission as a church isn't to make tapioca. We're not changing it as much fun as that would be. Uh, but I think those questions are really important when we talk about our mission to make disciples. Because I think we come to the table or we come to a space like this or come to a community like this with a lot of different ideas about what a disciple is. And we need to ask that question. If that's our mission, to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people, we need to understand what's a disciple? What's a disciple? Some of you have presuppositions and preconceptions of what that is. Some of you that don't come from church backgrounds, it's like a word that is not common, very foreign in our culture. It wasn't foreign in the New Testament where it was used by Jesus to talk about the nature of our relationship with him. So we need to talk about what's a disciple. 
But even if we were to talk about what it is, my history in the church is when I learn like what I'm supposed to do and I don't understand why I'm supposed to do it, the vision, the heartbeat, the soul behind this mission, I lose interest or maybe worse, I operate with no true heart, no true engagement out of duty and obligation. That burns people out. It can really harm and damage communities and you miss the heart of the gospel and the beauty of the mission that God's given us. So we need to talk about why. We need to talk about why. And then let's say we are clear on what a disciple is and we're clear on why we're making disciples. Then we'd, be, we'd need to start asking, how? How do I grow as a disciple? How do I even be a disciple? What does that mean? And then, much less for me, how do I help other people? If I've been given this mission from Jesus to make disciples, how do I participate in helping other people grow as disciples of Jesus? So that's what we're focused on for the next three weeks. What is the disciple? Why do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? Today we're going to focus primarily on those first two questions. Over the next couple weeks, we'll focus on the last one with a lot more practicality uh, to what that looks like and what we hope that will look like as a part of this community. But we need to begin with this question of, of what is a disciple. And before we get into it, I want to start by saying being a disciple of Jesus isn't like a churchy thing. It's not like a Sunday morning thing. It's not like a small group thing. It's not like a 9 a.m. thing. It's not like what you're doing in the morning or what you're doing in the evening. It's an all of life thing. It affects how you show up on a Sunday to worship Jesus with his people. It affects the way you go to work. It affects the way you think about the work that you've been called to do in the city. It affects the way you think about the way you engage with the people of God throughout the week. It affects the way you think about the way you relate to your neighbors or your roommates. It affects the way you think about your relationship to your husband or your wife or to your kids. It affects the way you think about your money. It affects the way you think about your body. It affects the way you think about friendship. It affects the way you think about culture. It affects the way you think about recreation. It affects the way you think about food and drink. It affects the way you wake up. It affects the way you go to bed. When we're talking about what it means to be a disciple, we're most fundamentally talking about what it means to be human. What it means to be human. What it means to be a human being in this world. What it means to be created by a creator and to live in line with the way he's designed us to be. That's what being a disciple is. It's being restored to our original intent. It's being restored to our humanity. This mission to make disciples is fundamentally about rehumanizing the world. It's about God's mission to restore us to who we've been designed to be as his people in his image in this world. And so I want to take a moment and uh, just kind of unpack uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus what he in this first century context meant when he talked about this idea of inviting people to be a disciple. So what is a disciple? The, the word disciple uh, is, again, something that was really common in the first century, but Jesus used it as a metaphor to describe the nature of his relationship with his people. It's not the only biblical metaphor that describes the nature of our relationship with God. There are all sorts of biblical metaphors. Like one of them is that of God as a father and we as his adopted sons and daughters. That's one of the metaphors that's used to describe the nature of our relationship with God. There's another metaphor that's used throughout the Bible of this idea of a covenant or a marriage covenant where Jesus as a groom is married to his people as a bride and it's describing the nature of this covenant relationship that even when we are faithless and run away again and again, Jesus is like a, a faithful groom that pursues us with faithful love over and over and over again. So the covenant of marriage and the metaphor that that is. There's the metaphors of, of a master to a servant 
where God is in charge and we're called to be obedient and submissive to his authority. It's one of the metaphors. And all these metaphors get at different aspects of our relationship with God. But the metaphor that Jesus most uses in the gospel and in his own early, uh, earthly ministry is that of a rabbi to a disciple. The Greek word for disciple is this word mathetes. The Hebrew word is talmid. And it was a, a kind of relationship, kind of like a rabbi, teacher, apprentice relationship that was common in first century Roman culture, all the way back from like Plato, Aristotle, all the way into the first century, second century, where teachers and philosophers would take a way of thinking, a way of life, a philosophy of life, and they would live that out in their life, and they would teach about it, and their disciples would be in relationship with them, travel around with them, learn about their life, learn about the way they think about reality, learn about the way they engage, how do they think about pain, how do they think about sorrow, how do they think about joy, how do they think about relationships, how do they think about eternity, how do they think about pleasure, all these things they kind of learn from their teachers. They would be a disciple. They'd be a disciple. And then for the Jewish community in the first century, that that relationship took on a kind of uh, an incredibly nuanced form, a nuanced form. And so if you were a child in the Jewish community in which Jesus was ministering in the gospel narratives, if you were a child in this community, when you became five or six years old, you'd enter into essentially elementary school. And so you'd call it Bet Sefer, which essentially means the house of the book, which is like primary school. Maybe from age five or six up to 10, 11, 12, you'd be in Bet Sefer and you'd be learning, you know, the, the alphabet, which, you know, comes from a Hebrew phrase, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, if you're going to learn the Hebrew alphabet, Alphabet, Aleph, Bet. You're going to learn the alphabet, you're going to learn about the kind of math and sciences and the world, but you're also going to learn Torah. You're going to learn the first five books of the Bible. You're going to memorize a ton of it. You're going to study it. And every Hebrew child is going to learn these things, Torah. Some children, very few, would, would go to school beyond Bet Sefer. Some, when they turned 12, 13, they'd go through this rite of passage to kind of enter into adulthood at the age of 12 or 13. And then they would go from that age, and some of them, the cream of the crop, would enter into this secondary school called Bet Midrash. Bet Midrash, they're going to start learning about the prophets. They're going to learn about different interpretations of the prophets. They're going to learn to study and research. And again, this is going to be like a college kind of thing. Very few people are entering into Bet, 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 Bet Midrash. Most of the people in that community are going immediately into trades, working with their family. Then the best of the best of the best would graduate from Bet Midrash and would say, I'm not done. I want more. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. And so they'd find the rabbi that's been teaching them or a rabbi that they respect, and they would essentially apply to be a Talmud, a mathetes of a rabbi, to be a disciple. And they'd apply to be a disciple, and they'd go to the rabbi, and they'd kind of prove their case. They'd kind of stack up their resume. They'd be like, look at all I know. Look at all that I've memorized. I've read this person's interpretation. I've read this. I know this. I've got this kind of under wraps. Uh, Look at my life. I'm righteous. I follow the rules. I do all the cleanliness laws. I do all these things. Like, I'm I'm your guy. I'm your gal. I'm I'm who you want. If you are looking for a, a disciple, I'm who you want. Look at the family I come from, this prestigious lineage. And they would just kind of stack up their accolades to to make a case for why they're worthy to be invited into this relationship with a rabbi as a disciple. And so in that relationship, a, a rabbi would look at this pool of candidates and decide who are the best of the best, who's creme de la creme, who are the elite, and they'd invite those people, follow me, be my disciple. The best of the best. Now, in all of the metaphors we mentioned, the sort of father to the adopted children, the the bridegroom to the bride, the kind of 
master to the servant, all of those relationships, all those metaphors have areas where the earthly way we think about those have both similarities and dissimilarities to the way we relate to God. Similarities and dissimilarities. In the idea of a parent-to-child relationship, there's a part of God's relationship with us that's like that. There's similarities, but there's still dissimilarities. Because as a parent, I'm still a human, I'm broken, I'm a mess myself, so I'm not being God to my kids. I'm just a broken image of that, right? And the kind of husband-wife relationship, there's similarities and there's dissimilarities. Same would be true in this relationship. When Jesus invites people to be his disciple, there are things that were expected within this relationship that are similar to the way Jesus thinks about us being his followers. But there's also a lot of things that are dissimilar. And one of them is the nature of how you enter into that relationship with Jesus. In the first century, like we said, it is this system of merit where you have to prove your worth, you have to prove your righteousness, you have to prove your knowledge, you have to prove your prestige, you have to prove that you're better than other people. You have to prove that you're on the top to be accepted as a disciple of a rabbi. Not so with Jesus. When Jesus comes onto the scene, you can read about this in any of the Gospels, he goes to some of the most ostracized and marginalized people, and he walks up to them before they've said anything about themselves, and the people that, if they were to begin to talk about themselves, the kind of people that would feel unworthy, the kind of people that would feel like, probably not me, the kind of few people that would feel like, I'll never be loved, I would never be accepted, I wouldn't even try to be a rabbi to anybody, or to be a disciple to anybody. I wouldn't even try, because my life's a mess. And Jesus would go up to people like that, to the Peters and the Andrews, the Mary Magdalene's, the James, the Johns, the Matthews. And he'd look at them with grace and with love and he'd say, follow me. Didn't have to prove anything. Didn't have to show their righteousness. Didn't have to prove how much Torah they memorized and scripture. Didn't have to show their family. They could actually embrace the reality of who they are and all their broken mess. And Jesus would come with grace in his eyes and say, you, follow me. And the same thing is true today. It's what he does. He invites people in the brokenness of who we are into this relationship that's founded on his grace. Not our merit, not our effort, not our righteousness, just this gracious invitation. Follow me. Come with me. Come be my disciple. And so he's doing that throughout the Gospels, and he's unpacking this beautiful thing. And as people are entering into this relationship, bewildered that this Jesus who's like other rabbis, like he's wise in his authority, but he's unlike other rabbis. He speaks with different kinds of authority. He does different kinds of things. He knows me in ways that seem so, so different. And they're invited into this relationship. And inside that relationship, those disciples would do what all disciples were doing. They would learn inside of that relationship, once a disciple, to be with their rabbi and to follow his way of life. They learn to be with him and to follow his way of life. There's gonna be a lot of times where the disciples were tempted to run away from Jesus when stuff got hard, when they were confused and Jesus was confusing, which he says confusing stuff. Anybody? Like he says crazy stuff. You're like, wait, what? You know, and when they'd hear that stuff, they they might be like, eh, pass. You know, I'm going to go back the other way. I'm going to go back to fishing because I'm not so sure. And they would wander and they'd veer, but they would constantly be reminded that this invitation to be a disciple of Jesus isn't based on their righteousness, and Jesus would continue over the long haul of their life, and you can read about it through the Gospels and through Acts, he would continue to teach them what it means to stay with him, to know his love, to know his grace, to know his forgiveness, to know his wisdom, and he would teach them to follow his way of life. 
That's what all disciples were doing. They'd travel around with their rabbi. They'd stay with them. They'd watch them. They'd see their example. They'd see the way they get up, the way they go to sleep, the way they engage with family, the way they engage with culture, the way they engage with the Romans, the way they think about justice, the way they think about forgiveness, the way they think about conflict, the way they think about God's laws. They'd look at all of it and they'd watch their life and they'd listen to their teaching and they little by little would seek to become like them. So that when they went off the scene and that rabbi fades off to the annals of history, that they would be able to carry on that mission and multiply that way of life. And so this invitation to follow Jesus, which is the primary way that Jesus talks about our relationship with him. In fact, the word Christian is never used in the Gospels. It's only used a couple times in the Bible, a couple times in Acts, mostly pejoratively by non Christ followers, looking at the people that are following Jesus and calling them little Christs. They're a bunch of little Christs. They, They follow that crucified guy. The little Christians. The primary way the New Testament talks about it is this invitation to a relationship of discipleship. And I want to be crystal clear. The invitation to that relationship is all by grace, through faith, and who Christ is and what he's done. Your invitation to be in relationship with the God of the universe to be reconciled to him, to be brought into that relationship is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And so your identity as a disciple has nothing to do with what you did or didn't do yesterday, has nothing to do with the failure in your past, the regrets in your story, the shame you wrestle with, the insecurities. Your identity as one who is reconciled to God, a child of God, in covenant relationship with God, is entirely founded on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He laid down his life, he shed his blood, he forgives you, he loves you. Inside of that relationship, inside of that umbrella of his grace, inside the security of covenant love, we are invited to follow him, to learn over the long haul of life, to stay with him, to pay attention, to depend on him to watch the way he lives, to listen to what he teaches, and little by little, through his grace, by the power of his spirit, to become like him, to follow his way. And so when we think our mission is to be and to make disciples of Jesus, what we're saying is to help people be reconciled to God by grace, and then to learn to be with him and to follow his way of life. That's our simple definition. What is a disciple? It's someone who has been reconciled to God by grace and is learning to be with Jesus, and to follow his way of life. For a lot of us, depending on where you've come from in the history of the church, a lot of us came from past, whether it was our own kind of struggles, thinking and listening and paying attention, or things we were actually explicitly taught, where we learned that like, to be a disciple is to pray a prayer, to become a Christian, and now that I'm a Christian, like, there are things I'm supposed to do. And like, we learned like, all the, the duties and all the activities of what I'm supposed to do. And there's no vision behind that. There's no grace around that. There's no centrality of the work of Christ that that gave us a kind of covenantal security to work that stuff out in. And so we felt insecurities and guilt and shame, whether that was something that just came from within us or is actually imposed upon us by cultures and teaching. It's probably different for each of us. And as we work that out, at some point, you feel beat down by this sort of religious system that's like telling you, do more, be more, be better, be stronger, kind of be more active. And that weight of obligation can crush people. And then we like learn about the gospel, about his love for us, his grace, and his freedom. And so for many of us, for me and my own story, I'm like, grace, love, faithfulness, mercy, forgiveness felt like, a, like just taking just like this soaking in this river of grace. felt so refreshing. 
so freeing, so liberating, knowing that I, I don't have to pretend that I'm better than I am, I can be honest, that I don't have to hide my brokenness and my, inadequ- my sense of inadequacy and my failures and my regrets and my insecurities. I can like be open and be like, I'm a person that's pretty broken. A sin of weakness, struggles, doubts, fears, deep, deep insecurities, working through them and he loves me. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. And it is. It is. I also think for a lot of us, as we learn to rest in that reality, that there's still this invitation to follow him. Still an invitation to learn. Still an invitation to obey. That's not for duty's sake. It's not because of obligation. It's because of his grace. And so I want to show you this in Matthew 28. I want to show you the way Jesus talks about it in the Great Commission. This is all over his teachings. When you read the teachings of Jesus or you read any of the teachings of his original followers, many of which are captured in the New Testament, you will read people speaking both about your identity in Christ, which is based on his unconditional love, his work for you, and by grace through faith in his work for you. And then you will also learn about these imperatives, indicatives about who you are, statements that are true and secure about who you are, and imperatives about given who you are, live like this. Become who you are. Obey. You'll see it in the life and teaching of Jesus. He invites people into relationship. Follow me. You're in. I love you. You're going to mess up. You're going to veer to the side. You're going to doubt me. You're going to betray me. I'm going to call you Satan. You're going to abandon me. I love you. And I love you. I'm not going to kick you out. I'm not going to like lose patience. I'm going to keep giving you the gracious invitation. Follow me. But inside that, he's going to teach a lot of stuff. We've been working through it for years. Years, you know, a couple left. In Matthew, we, we are learning. He's teaching us a way to live. And that's not just to prove that we suck and we need a Savior. It's because he has wisdom for life. He has wisdom. And it's the way it's always been. God has always invited us into relationship by grace. And he offers us his wisdom. We do turn from it, but it doesn't negate the call to follow his wisdom, to follow his way. So listen to what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It says, now the 11 disciples, this is after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's spent time with them, teaching them about his ways, teaching them about the kingdom. And now he's getting ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He gathers up his disciples. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. I love that line. So grateful for it, because I doubt. I struggle. It doesn't say they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then he kind of said, okay, hold on. You're doubting, you're doubting, you're out. I'm only going with the fully committed, fully confident people. It doesn't. Some are worshiping, some are pumped, some are confused and bewildered and a little disoriented. Don't know what to think. And that's who he's going to use to change the world. And so he says this. All authority in the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. I have power of the spirits of, of this age. I have powers of the, the devil and his minions and all the lies and all the bondage that he tries to trap people in. I have power to liberate people from spiritual powers and I have power over this earth to transform lives, to free people from their flesh and all their inclinations to run away from me. I have all authority. It's been given to me so Let's go. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all tongues, all nationalities, all cultures, everywhere. 
Make disciples of all nations. And he's going to define what he means by that with two participles. Put on your grammar hat. Here we go. Number one, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He speaks to this sacrament of baptism, which is a way that we celebrate our union with God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit by grace through faith in Christ. So we celebrate our entry into that relationship. You don't baptize people who figured it all out. You don't baptize people who've got it all together. You don't baptize people who learned all the theology. You don't baptize people who've like finally made their life like this, they're on the straight and narrow now. You baptize people who say, I'm broken and I need a savior and I believe that Jesus died to save me from my sin, to forgive me, cleanse me, and to reconcile me to God. Let's baptize you. Baptism is the entry into that covenant relationship by grace through faith in Christ. It's the beginning. And it's in the safety of that union with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that Jesus has this next line. Verse 20, teaching them, so baptizing them, welcome to the family of God by grace through faith. Now that you're in that family, now that we're in this discipleship relationship, we're going to be teaching them to observe, to obey, to live into, to follow after all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What Jesus is saying is that when we are thinking about what it means to be a disciple, we're reconciled to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, welcomed in this triune community of love. We're going to be a part of his joy, part of his peace, a, a part of his love in this family. And we're not going to get kicked out when we messed up because we weren't refrained from coming in because we messed up. We're welcomed in by grace. We're in by grace and by grace alone. And in that covenantal relationship, he says, teach them to live into, to follow after, to obey everything I've commanded you. Teach them how, how I taught you to relate to the Father, how Jesus would steal away to spend slow time with his Father, to remember his Father's love, to remember who he was as the Son of God, to remember his identity, to commune with the Father, to experience the Father's love and joy and affirmation as the Father would speak over him. Teach them to do that kind of stuff. Teach them to learn how to relate to fellow travelers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, how did Jesus do it? He loved people. He forgave people. He was gracious. He was patient. He was kind. He spoke the truth, but he spoke it with love. Teach them how to engage in the world. How did Jesus engage in the world? He loved his neighbor. Who was his neighbor? The hurting person that had need. He'd see them. He'd lean in. He'd pay attention to what their need was. He'd care. And he'd sacrificially step into that space to help them. He'd confront injustice. He'd confront corruption. He'd speak hard truths. He'd forgive and be gracious even to his enemies, even people that hated him, all the way to the point of on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. How do we engage with work? Does he come to this world and be like, well, I'm here to be the Savior. I'm not going to like do work. What a waste of time. All I need to do is get souls to heaven. No. He engaged. He learned the trade of his father, the carpenter. He learned blue-collar work where he did meaningful things, and he did it for the glory of God, his master, and he did it for the good of other people. How did he engage with food and drink? He partied, feasted, also fasted, and declined. He entered in. He drank alcohol, but he didn't get drunk. He ate food and partied, got accused of being a glutton, but didn't abuse food. He received things as a gift. How did he engage with the people around him in society? He was light. He was salt. He's the most compelling figure who has ever lived on the face of this planet. As you watch the way he engaged, what Jesus was teaching us is how to be human. 
And he says, teach them that. I love you. I'm not going to stop loving you. Grace, grace, grace. You wake up tomorrow morning, new mercy. Next morning, made a big mistake yesterday, but guess what? New mercy. Next morning, good news. Mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Beautiful. What a beautiful thing. Well, you, you veered off course. Yeah, that's like a part of the way. Teach them little by little over the long haul of life as we slowly crawl towards him and as we veer and, and make mistakes through the mountains and valleys and the victories and the setbacks and the failures. Teach them. Keep teaching them to follow my way. Follow my way. Why? Why? That's what a disciple is. It's somebody who's been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ and is learning to be with him and to follow his way of life. Why should we care? And it's not that complicated. The big reason not why is not to earn anything, not to deserve anything, not to merit anything. It's because being a disciple of Jesus is fundamental to your design as a human being. Being a disciple of Jesus is who you were made to be. Human beings were created in the image of God. And we're designed to be the image bearers of God. Jesus is the image of God par excellence. He is the exact imprint of God's nature in human form, in the flesh. A human being par excellence. We're supposed to look at him and say, that's what it means to be human. That kind of humility and courage, that kind of truth speaking and gentleness and love, that kind of faithfulness and kindness and honesty and mercy and grace, that justice seeking and mercy giving, that gracious one, he's the human. He's the one. He is the human that we're supposed to become like. That is what image bearing looks like. And so as we human beings created in the image of God, we're created to commune with the God who made us, to know his love, to know our identity, to be dependent on him, to trust his wisdom, to trust his ways, to trust his authority. And all of us, all of us opted out of that. All of us, like the first human beings, listened to the lies of the enemy that said, no, 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 there's a different way. There's a different way. Don't trust God. He's holding back. God's way is dumb. It's old school. Most people have moved past that. You dummies, you Christians, you know, you're the ones who like haven't learned that we've kind of transcended all those kind of archaic thinking. That's like old primal stuff. You know, we're past that. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Come this way. Life, joy, flourishing, hope. Turn away from God. You don't need to listen to him or those people. Turn away. And he's the deceiver, and he offers us all kinds of lies. We talked about him last week, all these lies. After he deceives us, he, he switches hats real, real smooth, and he puts on the accuser hat. And the accuser hat is, now you've turned away, he'll never love you. If the people in this room knew the doubts you have, the insecurities you feel, the inadequacy that haunts you, the shame that you carry, the mistakes that you've made, the regrets, if they knew the mixed motives that have brought you here today and that make you stick around, the people of God, if they knew the, the mixed motives, they would never welcome you. They'd never love you. He throws this accusing voice and it finds its way into our life and it keeps us away from the God of grace. It keeps us away from the atoning, cleansing blood of Christ who can wash and clean and welcome. It keeps us away from the God of love who sees all those things and doesn't say, no, you didn't mess up. He says, you did, but I sent my son to pay the penalty for your sin. He shed his blood to wash you, to cleanse you, and to show you how much I love you even while you run away from me. 
You running away, you messing up, you veering and wandering doesn't change my love for you. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. I sent my son to show you my love so that as you follow me, you never have to doubt my love for you. Never. You never have to doubt whether I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to show you mercy. You never have to doubt whether I'm going to be faithful to you. You may be faithless. You may wander. That'll happen. You're a human. I love you and I'm going to be with you always to the end. Helping you. Forgiving you. Mending you. Healing you. Disciplining you in love. Binding you up. Encouraging you when you need it. Calling out to you when you've run away. I'm going to do it because I love you, and nothing can change that love for you. And it's as we learn about his love, as we learn about his grace, as we veer and wander and veer and wander, and we start seeing and working through our insecurities and our fears and all these shames that have plagued us and keep tripping us up again and again, as we learn about that and his love heals us little by little, and we see his grace, see his kindness, we spend time with him, then we increasingly become the kind of people that can reflect that, that can be human like him. You really can grow. You really can grow. Do we still sin? 100%. Daily. More than we can ever imagine. And he loves us. But you really can grow. You really can become somebody who loves God increasingly with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can become the kind of person that wants to spend time with him daily. You can become the kind of person that wants to show love and kindness to other people around you. You can become the kind of person that wants to forgive because you found when you operate in the way of Jesus, you are living into who you were designed to be. You are in grain with your design. And when you're living in grain, within the current of your design, there's joy and there's freedom. And when you put Christ at the center, not only do you experience joy and freedom, when Christ is the center and he's changing you and he's changing you by his love to be somebody who reflects him, God gets glory from that. God is glorified through the life of people that are seeking to bear his image, not perfectly, but people that are so secure in his love, so comfortably being honest about our brokenness and our pain and our mistakes, that we're letting his love and his grace transform us, so committed to saying, I'm going to continue to follow you step by step every day, and then I'm going to veer away, and you're going to call me back, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to keep learning, and I'm going to learn to obey everything you commanded me. I want to. And I'll never arrive until you come and you remove from me this body of death that plagues my existence. But I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow because it's worth it for joy. And that's why our mission as a church is to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. It's worth it. It's for joy. It's for your joy. It's for your joy. If you ever wonder, why am I beat down and weary? because we're running in different directions. Why am I getting crushed by the anxieties of this world? Because there's things we still have to learn. Join the club. No shame. Me too. There's things he's still teaching us. That's why Jesus will say to people, are you tired? Are you beat down and weary? And you're like, yes. Uh, you know, am I the only one? You know? And it's like, no, we're all kind of like little hands up. We're like, oh my gosh, we all are? He says, come to me. Gracious invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll, I'll, res I'll restore you. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. That's be my disciple. Same word. Mathete. Mathete in me. Be my disciple. I'm gentle. I'm humble towards you. I welcome you again and again. And you're going to find rest for your soul because my way, it's, it's easy. It's like what you're made for. It doesn't mean life is easy, but my way teaches you a different way of engaging in life. That's it's the way you were designed. And the burden I give, 
the way I teach you to navigate through the complexities of life, it fits right. It fits right because it's who you're made to be. I'm teaching you to be truly, fully, beautifully human. And that's the mission that God has given us, both to become truly human in his image and to help others along the way as well. Let's pray that God would help us to be that kind of a people in this world. Jesus, we need you now. Would you pour out grace on us now that we would know your love where people feel weary, beat down, weathered by life. God, would you even now speak into their life, invite them again. Come to me. Come to me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. My mercy is more. Even when sin abounds, my grace abounds more and more. Would you give us the joy and the freedom, the liberty of being your children in this relationship of grace? And inside that relationship, would you teach us, keep teaching us to become who you made us to be, to live into who you've called us to be, to step into the identity that you've given us so graciously and help us to be a community that helps each other along the way. As fellow travelers, fellow sinners, but also fellow children of God, reminding each other of who we are in Christ and what it means to follow you faithfully. We need you, Jesus. We thank you. Help us to abide in your love and to follow your ways every day. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.